0: Greetings and welcome to DWR, Discussions on Writing and Rhetoric, a space for informal conversations around research and practice in the field at the university level, a place inclusive for curious novices, blossoming scholars, and seasoned academics to consider and share their inquiries, experiences, and passions surrounding writing and rhetoric. We are your hosts, Professors Megan Faulkner and Nicholas Gardiakos, with the University of Central Florida. Thank you for joining us. Now let's get this conversation started. Greetings and welcome to episode five of Discussions on Writing and Rhetoric. Today we are joined by Sebastian Garcia. Sebastian is a senior undergraduate at UCF working on a double major in biomedical sciences and history. His academic interests are history, writing, and research. Sebastian was selected as a panelist for UCF's Night Wright Showcase in spring of 2021 with his article, Is the Advanced Placement Program Really Advanced? A Critical Textual Analysis of an AP United States History Textbook. It was published in Stylus, a journal of first-year writing. His future goals include becoming a university professor in history, so he may continue researching all of his areas of interest. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sebastian.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited.
0: We're excited to have you here. So, for the viewers at home, or the listeners at home, I should say, Knight's Rite is a day at UCF where we celebrate the work of our first-year composition students in both ENC 1101 and 1102. Um. We asked you in that class, we collectively as a department, to come up with something that interests you and to do some research on it and write a paper. So what led you to this ambitious undertaking of analyzing an AP history textbook? And I don't want to spoil anything else, so I'm not going to say any more. So what led you to this line of inquiry, and where did it go from there?
1: Um, It originally started um when i took uh intro to philosophy in my first semester here at UCF so that was back in um summer of 2019 and in that class um it just opened up a lot of conversations that i didn't know about before um specifically about political philosophy the power of power so how um there are certain different ways in which the power keepers want to maintain their power and um a way in which not a lot of people notice that it's in telling history, you know. So um, I've always been, you know, interested in um, history, specifically United States history, ever since, like, middle school. And when I finally got the opportunity to do a research project in um, Professor Gadiago's 2019 fall class, um, I was, like, super excited and no hesitation on what I wanted to do um i'll be honest i didn't know i wanted to do the full textbook but my motivation and desire to do a a true research project just kind of took over
2: i want to chime in here and just say that i did try and persuade you to (laughs) not do the whole uh textbook in an effort to you know uh uh not have you have a huge undertaking for the class but um but so so what was it about that motivation and you can then continue you know your story about the project as well
1: um I mean the motivation just stemmed from me l- genuinely loving history and like liking to learn so I already had to read that textbook for um advanced placement U.S. history which I took my junior year of high school um so I was basically rereading it um and I don't mind rereading uh you know History. I'm that type of person that could watch a movie 20 times and still enjoy it, can listen to the same song. So and so with things that I genuinely love, it's no different. Um, so, yeah, that's where that motivation stemmed from, just that passion for history and then wanting to truly know um, if I could answer the research question I proposed.
0: Was there a particular philosophical approach? And I'm so sorry to put you on the spot because I know fine. that that class was a long time ago. But I am not a philosophy student myself. So, is there a particular like philosopher's approach to looking at it, and in, in terms of um, let me view this textbook through the eyes of? Um, forgive me if I'm wrong. Is this written by the the victor? Is this written um, unbiased in an unbiased way? Is this written, you know, considering? all the viewpoints is that what you were going for with yeah i was
1: i just wanted to so as i was dipping my toes in the water with what was out there in the literature um i just knew that i wanted originally i wanted to do something with history so then how i got from history to textbooks was that was mainly the literature that was out there about textbook and bias and bias was mentioned in that philosophy class um so once i just kept reading all those articles that were in the literature, I was like, okay, I want to do textbook and bias. And then what led me to specifically an AP textbook was not only the fact that I read one myself and I was part of that experience, but also the literature didn't have any advanced placement textbooks. It was either high school textbooks, uh, middle school textbooks, elementary school textbooks, um, maybe some college textbooks, but none of them were about the advanced placement program. And, um, I wanted to not only fill in that gap, just to fill in the gap, but I think it's imperative to fill that gap because um, advanced placement is a program that just keeps increasing in its numbers. And I wrote about this in my paper since the 1990s. It's been increasing in its numbers throughout the country. So I think it's really imperative to analyze textbooks that are used for that program.
0: You think about the AP student; it is a very particular audience. If you're making rhetorical decisions in the way that you're explaining, which should be fact-driven data, right? A textbook, we can we think about a textbook as being basically pages of facts, right? Right, exactly. Um, the telling of history should be a story of facts of events that took place in over a period of time, right? Um, with the consideration of a particular audience of AP students being that these are students that should have a somewhat different understanding of nuance and perhaps, uh, you know, different from a typical high school student. Right. Um, not quite to where a college student is, but almost where a college student is. Right. Um, so that is a very interesting consideration. And I do have one quick question for you. You have referenced the literature. You're saying the literature talked about textbooks in high school. The literature talked about textbooks in college. What literature are you mentioning? Are you mentioning other um Researchers that are doing studies on the way that textbooks are giving their messages, or what do you mean by literature?
1: Um, Other researchers doing similar studies um, of textbook and biased, or just like analyzing history textbooks in general.
0: Okay.
2: Yeah, and I thought it was interesting too from your, I remember from your proposal for this ENC 1102 research project that you were doing, you mentioned part of the motivation there being that in the AP class, like, a lot of the materials were focused on, you know, the AP exam, so things that would be on the AP exam, what students, you know, should prepare for for the AP exam, which, again, is completely understandable as a, as a you know, premise for, like, and, and goal of the of an AP course, but can you talk a little bit about, like, what you noticed that sort of, you know, made you want to ask these sort of deeper questions about what you were learning in AP history?
1: Um. Well, like you guys mentioned before, we see textbooks as a factual piece of information. It's like the most factual, reliable source out there. So that alone just made me want to investigate if that was true. And the fact that it's an AP textbook, like how you mentioned, um, it's a very particular audience, uh, a student that is supposed to be higher level than the average. So I really wanted to see whether... What they were putting out there, they as in the college board, was that higher level content. So that's really what motivated me to ask those deeper questions about bias and, um, and in general, if the information was relevant and accurate.
2: Can you talk a little bit about? I know you know uh, you came by this semester and talked to my eleven o two students, yes. which was really great. Yes, um, it was great of you to 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 spend that time and and to give that time uh, and to talk to students uh, in my classes as their you know ENC eleven o two students in the process of you know when you spoke to them designing things like their methodology and their questions. Um, can you speak a little bit about in, in your particular research project? The design of your methodology um, and what that process was like and, and how you decided to uh, actually analyze the text you know in doing your you know rhetorical analysis uh, of the text about issues of representation can you walk us through that process a little bit
1: for sure so i have been honestly i've been blessed to have certain teachers throughout my life whether it's in college or in high school so um It's probably like a little shout out, but, you know, uh, Dr. Haas and Miss Rosa were um, my two research teachers back in high school. Um, I took AP Capstone and there is where I really learned the fundamentals of research. So not uh, reading articles, but analyzing the literature, how to develop a accurate and appropriate methodology, how to analyze your own results and how to formulate and put all those pieces together to write. research paper. And then when I got to college, and I took your class, Professor Guardiaco's, you told me you taught me how to analyze it in a rhetorical medium, which that I've never done before, because the two um, research projects that I did before your class in high school was they were quantitative studies. So just purely numbers. But your class was the first time I attempted to do a qualitative study. And I ended up doing both. But So that was different. So just throughout that journey of learning from all these different people and teachers and professors really enabled me to do this undertaking because you could have all the motivation in the world, which that certainly helps. But if you don't have the tools to actually do it, then it probably won't be feasible. So.
0: So I'm really curious, my mind, I'm I'm sitting here probably looking like I'm staring off into space because I'm thinking about so many elements to this type of approach to an analysis of a textbook um, because I'm really curious as to what it might tell us. Um, So you decided to do this rhetorical analysis of this textbook in its entirety to look at potential biases that were um, evident. And is this the type of thing that you just went chapter by chapter were you also considering, um, as uh, uh, Nick mentioned, the like test questions and test prep? Because I'm curious to think about what is the textbook also directing us to consider as in terms of the important things that we take away from those chapters that we're then being tested on to make sure that we remember. So, talk to us a little bit about that consideration. I know that you asked about methodology, but I'm, I'm really, really wanting to know the nuts and bolts of how you approach this analysis.
1: So in terms of test questions, um, that I didn't end up looking at uh, because it was just so much already that I was looking at. However, in my discussion in the paper, I do mention which kind of talks to that test questions because these questions are developed by the college board. So what I argued in the discussion part of my paper was that. This is not only an analysis of this AP textbook, but this is also a reflection of what the college board deems necessary and valuable to learn as like a test. So that's where I kind of talk about it. Even though I didn't analyze the test questions myself, the fact that I analyzed the whole textbook, I kind of, you know, made sure it was a reflection of what the college board, you know, wants, deems necessary for their students to to learn for their exams.
0: Well, like at the end of each chapter are there questions? Yes. Okay. So that's yeah. what I was kinda getting at. Like I was I would assume that those chapter questions are to prepare you for what you should be concentrating right. towards exactly. for the actual test. Okay. And that's
1: what I that's my argument that I used, uh how what they deem necessary, if it if it's true, if it's valid or not. And um in terms of how I did it, which was a, a question that I got a lot when I talked to your class, uh I did do chapter by chapter. Um So I would sit down and I would analyze I would read the page first without making any notes and then I would reread it and then take notes of it. And then um, like how I showed in Night's Right in my Night's Right presentation back in spring 2021 and when I talked to your class a couple of weeks ago was that I had a notebook and I color coded. So purple was um, quantitative data. So my quantitative data was just the bias called underrepresentation. So this was simply looking at how many lines or paragraphs and then pages were certain marginalized groups referenced in comparison to the total amount of pages, paragraphs in that chapter. So that's what's underrepresentation, specifically in chapters that these marginalized groups do have an important role in history, yet these um in the textbook they're not referenced enough so that was the quantitative aspect and then qualitatively would be um I would write in blue and those would just be notes of the biases that I found in the literature in the literature and the other research studies that I analyzed so these were gender bias racial bias and then ideological bias ideological bias is um basically a Eurocentric attitude in writing history. Um and the perfect example I have for that was in the first chapter, there was a whole page dedicated to um the Portuguese exploration in Africa. Um which it had nothing to do with the the chapter one, which was basically about Native Americans before um the European came to the United uh, came to the America, sorry. And so I use that example always when I talk about ideological bias because that clearly shows the Eurocentric attitude in writing it. It's something that was completely irrelevant. It showed in chapter one. So so yeah, I went chapter by chapter. Um, re-re- I read read it like twice, three times to make sure I got everything because I, I know what I was doing. Like I know how quote unquote controversial this could be. So I really wanted to make sure that I didn't perpetrate biases of my own. So, you know, how can I call out one for bias and then repeat it? So that's why I, you know, consistently double, triple checked myself. And so the amount of pages I read was 423. 423 pages. Wow. I did yeah.
0: <laughs> to my ENC 1102 students listening at home, please don't think that this is a requirement of the class. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is what we call
1: above and beyond. Yes. And um it took me roughly a week, so I would just discipline myself to read um so in total there was 31 chapters and each chapter had 10 plus pages, sometimes even like, you know, 20 um, So I would try just try to do at least four chapters every day, maybe five, six. And because, like I mentioned, when I was presenting to the class, was that this was my doing. No one told me to be this ambitious. It's just coming from within. But at the end of the day, I still had a due date to comply with. So it didn't matter that this project was super ambitious. I still had a due date for Professor Guardiaco's class.
0: This is also, though, why it's so important for the research that you do in 1102 to be something that you're passionate about exactly because if we were to assign something like this to you, (laughs) not only would there probably be a lot of calls to counseling services (laughs) (laughs) through the course of the project, a lot of tears, a lot of bad rate my professors. Um, No, but there's, um, there's something really, Oh gosh, how can I say this without sounding really academically nerdy? um, There's something very empowering about the first time you get to really engage in research that is driven by your own desire to know. Right. You know, and getting a taste for that early in your academic career is unusual. It's not till you're usually much later in your senior year or even as a grad student that you actually have some control over what it is that you're researching. So I think it's really exciting that as a freshman or a freshman-ish era, mm-hmm. you get to have a chance to say this, okay, I'm going all in on this. Because right. also, if it had been something we assigned, I'm sure you would have given up, like thrown your hands up halfway right. through and been like, okay, I'm right. good with just doing like the first two chapters. A whole textbook was way too ambitious. Right. I'm not doing all of this. Um, and so, I love that about our course and I love that about like hearing yes. you say like that dedication to this project, like, no, I need to know. I have this, I have this want to know the answer exactly. and I do have my own like reputation at stake. I know this is controversial. I know that what I'm looking at is something that could be questionable. Right. So I'm going to go all in and really do, do the deep dive.
1: Yeah. It's um, I always tell students that are embarking in research to do something they're passionate about doesn't have to be crazily crazy passionate like me uh I'm just a weirdo like that but uh we all
0: are it's fine <laughs> you're in good company
1: <laughs> but um something that you genuinely do care about because um like my high school teacher told me Dr. Haas this is going to be something you're married to for a couple months and in that case a whole year cuz it was high school but for these semesters 4 or 5 months so you really want to be invested in it because if not it's just going to show in the writing and in the quality of work that you didn't care and that you weren't, and you truly weren't interested
2: in what you were doing. And, um, yeah. So, yeah. So I'm curious, you know, you mentioned, and that was the number one piece of advice you gave, you know, when you spoke to my classes about, you know, finding something that you're passionate in. Um, do you have any other uh, advice for students or, you know, when you think about, you know, way back in the, the before times of fall 2019. <laughs> it seems um, like forever ago. It does seem like forever ago. You know, thinking about it from the perspective you have now, you know, you know, what advice do you have for either other students or, you know, things that you might do differently?
1: Um, so the advice that I would give to students, besides the fact to pick something that you're truly passionate about, is to genuinely read the literature, Um, I'm not going to lie, that is a part of research that for me personally is the most difficult because it could be a lot of sources to go through and to really make sure um, if it's relevant and valuable to your own research. And also it could be frustrating because I know there's times where I'm in EBSCO or Google Scholar or just in these online databases and it feels like I'm doing the perfect searches, the, the perfect keywords, but... I don't get the quality of articles that I'm, I want. So I know that could be really frustrating, but that is so crucial in your own project because I look at the literature review research synthesis as the first step of your, pro- cause it is the first step. It's like the building blocks. If I feel like if you don't have a good uh, literature review, you won't have a good project. Cause that's where your project stems from, you know? So, like, if I didn't get the quality of sources that I got for my um, AP textbook analysis, I feel like my research project wouldn't be that good. Because, yeah, I knew about biases, but I'll be honest with you, until that point, even in that philosophy class, this isn't, this isn't something that they teach you. I wasn't taught about bias in high school or in my introductory college courses. This is something that I learned by doing the project itself, by reading the literature. So the fact that I was able to get great quality sources really set me up for a great paper down the road.
0: A lot of vigorous head nodding by me because I know that I, I try to preach that to my students. Well, preach sounds terrible. I try to explain that to my students as well because it's from my own experiences as a researcher that it can it's very time consuming. Yes, and it can be very deflating. It can when you feel like you have this great idea and you're trying to find the sources to position it amongst and when you can't find them, and then it it kind of takes the wind out of your sails um, because you're like, well, does does it mean that I don't have this great mm-hmm. idea, or mm-hmm. is it not really going anywhere? Um, I wanted to ask you about the experience of presenting at night's right. Now, was that the virtual year?
2: That was the year. Unfortunately. That, yeah, we, we, <laughs> we, yeah, we weren't in person, um, in that, um, spring of 20, 2020. Oh yeah. Right. Um, spring of 2021. Um, yeah, we, we had virtual, uh, panels, um, where, where students, uh, presented and then we had Q and A's and, and things like that. Um, it wasn't the same as, as the, the live uh, right. event, um, but yeah, but yeah, but it was online. It's
0: still it's it's one thing to write in your room and submit, you know, a document to your professor and then on to stylus. It's very different to read it even to an into a, a computer screen where there's people listening. What was that like?
1: That was an a great experience. Um, I had um previous experience um, similar to Knights Ripe right, back in my senior year of high school. I presented at a research symposium at FIU, um, and the, what I was presenting there was the research project I did a year prior, which was uh, about sports nutrition um, knowledge in high school athletes. So I had, you know, I, I knew what was it about and what was expected. Nonetheless, I was still really excited because this is a, a project that I put, I invested so much time in, and. Um, it was no one's fault that it was virtual, obviously, but I really do wish it was in person, but nonetheless, it was still great. And that whole experience, I really wanted to, cause like you said, it's different from writing to presenting. Yeah, you know, it could it could be two totally different studies depending on how you present it. So I really wanted to make sure that what I wrote is what is gonna be presented. So I had to reread my paper, which was a lot, <laughs> but that's fine. <laughs> um. And make sure that the main points that I made on my paper were going to be translated into the presentation, especially since my paper was so long and I only had like eight minutes, I think, to present. So I really had to make sure that the biggest the biggest punches were going to be made in that presentation. And when I presented, I mean, it was, again, virtual. So I just saw a bunch of comments popping up and I couldn't get distracted by them. I was just in the back of my head, I was hoping there were great comments and not like people roasting me or, or telling me this project sucks, get out. <laughs> Luckily, there were good comments because when I finished, I read them back and it was great. Yeah.
0: In, in preparation, did you read your paper out loud to yourself to see where it was hitting or where you felt like it was falling flat or did you just read it, you know, silently? I
1: read it silently, but now look, looking back, I think reading out loud would have been better because um, it just sounds different and a lot of the things that maybe you could miss by reading it in your head you cannot miss when you're reading it out loud because it's out loud but yeah I just read it silently to myself and um I mainly focused on the results and the discussion because um well Professor Gradiacos also gave me good advice for the presentation he told me to just focus on your own research for this you know it's not like a 30 minute presentation if it was then you could have talk about the literature your methodology but since you are very um, limited on time he said just go for the biggest punches in your paper just tell them what you found and that's what's going to really captivate the audience and it sure did
2: Mm. yeah it was great to see the the reaction and and comments while you were you know presenting um you know via zoom in the in the virtual presentation and it is something that's really interesting to work with students to do which is to distill you know, a, a long-term project into a short, very short um, presentation of you know that research project. Um, but I think it's it, it is interesting to to get people engaged in the the idea of the research and the question um, itself. When you think back on that experience of of presenting your paper and doing nights right, and now that you know, uh. uh there's been more kind of time and perspective that has passed. I'm curious, like what does that, you know, what does that experience mean to you when you look back on an hour, think about it in terms of your, you know, educational career or life goals or, or however it's impacted you.
1: It means a lot. Um, it really does. Cause I see those type of presentations and um, events as recognition for the work you put in. And, um, I really did put a lot of work into this paper, so it really does mean a lot. Um, so when I look back, I mean, when I do look back, because it's not like when, so I have already looked back at it, uh, it just makes me extremely grateful and happy that my work was able to be recognized, but at the same time, it also motivates me to keep going and then knowing that I could keep producing this type of work and then some, so...
0: So what are your plans now that you're in your last year here at UCF?
1: Oh, <laughs> so um, my plans is to graduate. Um, and then after graduation, I just because of the nature of how I finished, um, I will be taking a gap year. It's not like voluntarily. I mean, it kind of is, but it's kind of not. Um, so then in that gap year, just keep building up my resume and um, probably doing more research um, internships and, um, start applying to history, graduate schools, graduate programs, um, MA, PhD, and then go from there. So that's the plan.
0: So writing will play a part in your post-graduation plans.
2: Most definitely. (laughs) So not to, you know, put you on the spot about what your research questions might be, but what are your research interests at this point? You know, now that you've had, um, a lot of these kind of, you know, impactful research experiences in your career when you imagine you know the things you might look at or the questions you might ask what are some some of those things for you that's a really good question
1: um I I don't limit myself to a specific um I don't want to say discipline because that's really broad still but a specific question or a realm of questions um so Anything with history, I am totally up for um, to research. And since I do have this um, science background, I would, you know, one of my, I mean, I don't want to sound dramatic here, but one of my biggest regrets in undergrad was um, I was never able to follow up my research from high school, the sports nutrition one, uh, because that was That was really my first ever research project I did. You know, it was the full thing, the literature, methodology, results, discussion, conclusion. And I did my own research. I surveyed one hundred and seventy seven high school athletes from my high school. Um, and I know that there was this opportunity to follow up that study in college. I had to just shoot a bunch of cold emails to any of the dietitians, registered dietitians here at UCF, but um, you know too busy then COVID came and then next thing you know I'm about to leave and I feel like it's a little too late but uh, but that just shows you that I like I'm open to that side that discipline as well but history is the main you know where I'm going to stay at and do most of my research questions and not just history but like writing in general you know how writing you know writing about writing yeah <laughs> so yeah like so those those are kind of like I don't want to say big three, but the main areas that I'll be at.
0: Well, I feel like I've succeeded for a semester. If I can get my students to consider that they can begin to question acts of communication in the world around them, that they're more than just what they appear to be on the surface. And if they, if they can understand that, then it's a win that it doesn't matter if it's um, a, a TV show, they're watching, if it's memes, if it's gifts, if it's Instagram, TikTok, whatever, you can start to look at any of those things and begin to look at the bigger picture, bigger implications. What's happening rhetorically? What are, what are we seeing that's both stated and unstated? Um, and if, and then Then if you start to go, well, that's really interesting. What's happening here? And that, I think, is more to the point that it's exposing. Oh, gosh, I need to be really careful with my word choices. Um, Not exposing because that sounds terrible. (laughs) Giving students the agency and opportunity to begin to question things for themselves once they have a toolkit of things that they can examine them with, like, rhetoric or audience consideration or, um, exigency or any of those things like looking at the way communication happens in sports, yep. um, you know, amongst players, amongst, um, the players to their fans, the mm-hmm. players to other players, the players to the, um, you know, the agencies, the government, the way that players speak to th- football players speak to the NFL, mm-hmm. um, the way that ba- baseball players right now are speaking to the MLB, Yeah. um, the way that maybe different sports players speak to each other. A lot that's happening right now with soccer, mm-hmm. with what's happening with these oligarchs that are being forced yep. to sell their mm-hmm. their teams. Their teams. Yep. Um, you know, we we talk off off mic. Believe it or not, <laughs> you know, we'll be watching TV and I'm like, "Succession" is like the best show I've ever watched. I want to write a paper on Succession. Yeah. I don't know what I want to write, but I want to do something. So I think it's just an example that once you begin to question, you can start to see where it can go anywhere. And you're not limited to, I wanna study history, therefore I can only question and research history.
1: Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. It's uh, like how you're saying, TikToks, memes, whatever it could be, if you have a critical eye for it, you could get some valuable information out of it. And it's not even forcing that information, it's there. It's just, you have to ask the appropriate questions, have an appropriate methodology and you could get it it's not even like a stretch um because I know maybe that's how it sounds but it's definitely not it so I 100 percent agree so that's why I'm very broad with my future research endeavors because like you said it could be literally anything and there could be valuable stuff in that
2: mm-hmm. yeah and I think the writing about writing approach that we have in the composition class really, does create a space for that kind of questioning of everything and just looking at the world around us because everything is kind of mediated and um, done through communication whatever kind of form it takes you know and I think when I talk to students about the example of your paper in in my uh, 1102 classes that's one thing that I that I really like about your question not only is it is it you know, well-designed uh, uh, methodology and and you know highly motivated um, and well-executed. You know, beyond beyond belief. But I also think what I point out to students is that here's a student that um, was was willing to and and curious about turning his critical eye to his own textbooks that that he was sort of being given, mm-hmm. um, and and it's sort of e- even something that we sort of as students put up on a pedestal like a textbook right, right? exactly it's the be all and end all of, exactly it's where knowledge mm-hmm, exists mm-hmm. in writing form exactly right? it's we kind of you know when we're students approach it as li- these are like kind of untouchable things right and so what i like to point out is is you no know, this student like questioned his own textbook mm-hmm. and and you can do that with the things in this class and everything you kind of interact with
1: yeah for sure and that was like the biggest motivation again, for that, for my project was, you know, we kind of put it in this standard, this certain standard of untouchable. It's, you know, like you said, the end all be all of knowledge. Um, when that's not certainly true, you know, for all other things that are end all be alls. So, you know, and yes, to talk more about like my results of my paper, it does surpass in the textbooks of old, like from the 20th century, um, by like a lot Um, But that doesn't mean that there aren't biases present in this um, textbook, which was written in 2018.
2: Yeah. And I think it it just goes along with with everything that we think about in terms of our communication, but also like our values. Um, You know, there's no, you know point at which we're you know especially now that we can say hey we're good you know we 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 made it you right. know um and high five each other about you know uh, our progress mm. i think there's you know i think what your study points out is that yes better but still you know room right. to room to improve and, and room to develop a little further which is why it's a great question or discussion
0: I think you should give a quick shout out to your high school and to those profe- those teachers <laughs> <Absolutely>, again. yeah. <laughs> because obviously they had a big impact on you, and I'm yeah. sure they do with other students. So where did you go to school?
1: I went to Southwest Miami Senior High School.
0: And what were those teachers? Who were those teachers again?
1: Um, Dr. Haas. Uh, she was my 10th grade English, but also 10th grade AP Capstone Seminar teacher. Um, and then my 11th grade research teacher, because it was
2: called research when you went to 11th grade, was
1: Miss um, Rosa. So... Yeah. Shout out.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, those those sounded like really kind of impactful experiences, you know, for especially for for high school. I mean, I I've
1: been lucky enough where they've invited me back to speak with the 10th graders and the 11th graders. And um, I've had other teachers in high school that were extremely influential to me that um, weren't necessarily my research teachers, but they still played a big role in my development and maturity in high school. Um, but I, st- when I go back and I present to those classes, the seminar research classes, um, I tell them that this is the most important advanced placement class you're gonna take in high school. This is where, like, you are going to be doing this in college. Like, I can guarantee you that. I can't guarantee you if you'll do DBQs, FRQs, uh, and all those things that they test you on certain other AP exams, but you will write research papers no matter what discipline you're in. You know, and that's coming from me who. I'm both sides of the ball. I'm in biomed sciences and history. And let me tell you, in both of those degrees, both of those majors, I've had to write research papers. So I always tell those kids that really, if you're going to care about one class, you got to care about this one, this uh, seminar, AP seminar, AP research class, because the skills really do translate. And if you and if you really do um, appreciate the opportunity you're given to take those classes, you could do incredible work when you're in college and so yeah I've been lucky to have those two teachers and in my experiences with them it's been great
0: you spoke a little bit about they gave you your foundation and qualitative research and then 1102 with um professor Guardiakos Gardier- gave you quantitative did I get that right no the, the opposite opposite yeah okay <laughs> reverse <laughs> well I won't say it again because you just did um it's all good <laughs> how have you seen that play out into your other coursework after you took that class? Have you seen it where you've used it in your advanced class, your coursework here at UCF?
1: Um, After Professor Guardiaco's class? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was really the first class that I utilized those skills I learned in high school. And then from there on out, it was almost every semester I I had at least one class where I had to use, had to write a research paper. Um, Whether that was a biography of an historical figure I mean, that that example, that assignment comes up to mind because I really had to I never written a biography before, like a research biography. However, it was it still followed that same structure of a kind of like a literature review, not really literature review, more of like early life introduction. But it's still setting that foundation for the rest of the paper and how to intertwine your own voice with sources, which is another really difficult thing to do. And honestly, with practice, it comes Like Mm -hmm. it's not something you just have to write papers and papers to really get that skill down packed. I mean, I don't have it down packed at all, but I could say I've gotten better at it. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that and I feel like I mean, this might be a little tangent, but I'll come back that uh, I feel like that is what separates a good writer from a great writer. If you could distinguish your own voice, especially with papers that are so source heavy. I don't want to read just a summary of the readings you read. I want you to, you know. Tell me, but also I want to hear your own arguments and takes on it and kind of, you know, make it like a story. Intertwine the sources that align with each other, that don't align with each other. And it will be a really enjoyable piece from there on out.
2: Yeah, I think I I love that explanation because it sounds like something I said a few days ago in <laughs> ENC 1102. No, we're talking about. The creative use of research right. and sources, right? And how, you know, part of what we're trying to do in that course is to get students to think about themselves differently, not just students that report on a thing, but but students that have thoughts and arguments and claims to make about the research that they're reading and the things that they're analyzing and talking about. So, it you know, it's great that that you had that experience or or kind of realize you know that that's a big part of it.
1: Yeah,
0: it's a big transition because when you're in up until high school, you view secondary sources as just like textbooks. Mm-hmm. These sort of up on a pedestal. Right. Um, these people are experts. I am just a novice. Mm-hmm. I can only regurgitate what they have to say. Exactly. Once you're in college, though, you are in the arena Mm -hmm. that is shared with them, but it's still a really big shift. And I had the very unpleasant experience a few semesters ago of trying to give the example of it's like you're the host of a talk show. It's your talk show. You decide the topic. The secondary sources are guests. And I say it was an unpleasant example because my class said, "What is a talk show?" And I realized,
2: <laughs> wow, I realized, <laughs> I called you out. <laughs>
0: yes, I had a moment, um, and yeah. So, but it is—it's—it's a—it's a big shift as a writer, and I agree that it is a struggle. That it takes a lot of practice, and it's something that I think all writers um, struggle with because in particular when you're broaching into areas that you may not feel like you're an expert yet. Right. Like I'm just sticking my toe in the pool of being an expert in this topic. And these people have been writing about it forever. Like what could I possibly have to say mm-hmm. that's as a, as important or well thought as them, but it is. Yeah. And that is a, that is a big shift.
1: And I think an important thing to play, to piggyback for what you just said is that I feel like really analyzing, trying to find the gap in the literature could make you, you know, be that quote unquote established voice. Because it's hard, like you said, to distinguish yourself from these researchers that have been doing this for years. I mean, their life's work. But if you could take what they've done and, again, not stretch it, but genuinely find with the critical eye a gap in what they said, you could, like, that alone separates you. You know, you don't have to be necessarily repeating what they're saying but in fact you're just using what they that what they researched and then doing it to your own with the gap you found like for for example with mine um i mean I'll, I'll give you two examples for the sports nutrition paper that i did back in high school that one's the quicker one the easier one to explain um when i was reading the literature and i had again i haven't taken a sports nutrition class i'm not an expert on sports nutrition I mean, I was an athlete myself in high school, so I obviously knew not to, like, eat McDonald's right after practice. <laughs> <laughs> but um, to say I knew the specific, the specific composition of proteins and carbohydrates and fats and amino, you know, no, I did not know that uh, as a high schooler. I mean, I barely know that now even. But when I was l- reading the, the literature and reading those articles from those researchers that have been doing this, again, for their, like, entire life, I was able to not only learn from them, but I also, with my critical eye, realized none of them have done high school athletes, like none of them. And I and I, I, always try to avoid using absolute terms, but I, out of all the sources that I at least read, none of them researched high school athletes. It was only college athletes, collegiate athletes. So that's where I found my gap. So now that puts me in a position where I don't have to piggyback what they did. This is my own creative research. Yes, I'm using their sources not only to inform myself, but to back up where I'm coming from. But this is an entirely new research project that hopefully um, could play into the broader conversation. And so the same thing with the AP textbook. None of them analyzed advanced placement textbooks. So I wanted to do an analysis on an advanced placement textbook, which already sets me apart from what they did before. So... I feel like finding that gap um, and then establishing your own voice really could really set you apart from the others.
2: Yeah, that's that's a great piece of advice um, for for any researcher, really, at any level. Um, I want to circle back to something that you mentioned before, which is kind of another aspect of ENC 1102 and, and our writing about writing you know composition approach in our department is you know thinking about things that students can learn and do in our classes that help them recognize uh, and transfer to other genres that they might write so like you were, you mentioned the historical biography that you wrote and how you kind of took, you know, one of the things about that at least uh, that I've read about transfer theory is that, you know, it's, it's, you know, a lot of times to learn to do something we haven't done before where we always draw upon what we know how to do, right. What those experiences are and, and then using those to figure out something that we haven't done before. So it's interesting to hear you talk about, okay, here's what I've done. Um, What can I recognize in that in in doing, you know, something new or something I haven't done before?
1: Yeah, uh, exactly what you said. So it's I all the skills that I've learned from your class in fall 2019 from that AP textbook um, research project came from what I learned in high school. So it's like a kind of like dominoes, you know, domino effect. Um, And I have used those skills every semester onward after your class, whether it's the history biography, um, or other research projects that I've done. In fact, the latest one that I, that I've, um, that I just finished was it's a research project about analyzing, um, the Olympics, the, not the winter Olympics, the Tokyo Olympics this summer, this past summer. Um, and seeing how it is representative of our current global pandemic culture. And, um, Luckily, i I was uh, accepted to present it at a, the UCF's research symposium this month, on March 30th. Wow! So, congratulations! Thank you. Uh, I'm excited. I'm. I say luckily because I've never applied to these research symposiums. Like it's always been just off invites. So I was just a little scared that I, my mind was probably not going to make it. But it did, and it was a. It was a. It was a tough research project to do because it wasn't as structured as. Um, like the process wasn't as structured as I have experienced before with your class or back in high school. So, um, so yeah, like I, it was kind of out of my comfort zone, but it was still a really interesting research project. And, um, the motivation just came from the pandemic itself, how within these three years, a whole different world has been created, you know? And uh, I feel like if you go back in history, because this was for a history class, so it had to be the origin of the project had to be something historical. So, if you go back in history, the Olympics have always been a medium of that time to show the current political climate. So, mm-hmm. you go back to the 1936 Games mm-hmm. in Berlin, mm-hmm. and Hitler used that to promote his Nazi propaganda and agenda. Mm-hmm. If you go to the 1968 Games mm-hmm. in Mexico City, the US athletes on the podium with the black power fist representing the times here in the United States during the civil rights movement. So I felt like this Olympics in 2021 in Tokyo was no different and how I did that project was I surveyed people. I tried to survey most of my demographics of course was college students but I tried to survey also older adults because I wanted to also see the generational differences and um Luckily, I say luckily because obviously you have these certain hypotheses going in, mm-hmm. but you know, in your own mind. And a lot of people, what they remembered most about these games was Simone Biles and mental health. And mental health is a big thing during the pandemic. And I wrote about it in my paper saying that even 20 years ago in the 2000 games in Sydney, no one was talking about mental health. And now we're talking about mental health because of what she was able. To, she was able to use that platform that international platform and also i felt like a lot of people were able to relate with it because of the pandemic because of the three year two years of loneliness quarantine and all that so it was a really cool uh research project and i'm glad I was i'm able to present it again so yeah
0: you are definitely too young to remember um nancy kerrigan and tanya harding other than the dramatic recreations recently but what a very different response to mental health issues Mm -hmm. (laughs) amongst athletes in olympic stories Mm um within you know 20 years of one another but yeah
2: yep yeah so we're closing in on our time for this episode i want to thank you so much for for being here and taking the time um but i want to ask um you know in terms of, you know, you, you've talked about grad school, um, but just kind of looking forward to, to things that you're excited about or things that are on the horizon for you. Like what, what's on your mind when you think about, you know, you, you know you've talked a, a lot about the impactfulness of all the experiences that you've, yeah. that you've gone through and, and been lucky enough to have as a student. So now like looking forward, what do you, what do you imagine? What are you excited about? I'm really excited about just
1: grad school um, I honestly don't know what to expect. I've talked to some of the professors that I've been lucky enough to have been close with throughout my time here at UCF. And, um, they tell me that, you know, they give me broad advice, which is fine. But I, the fact that I don't know it's on, honestly, what making me feel excited, you know, not knowing it's a little, it's scary. I'm not going to lie, but it's also exciting. So just grad school and, you know, i know in grad school it's also very research heavy and to you know get that phd is also very research heavy and um, i'm all for it because you know the past five years i've you know been really invested in research and i will continue to do so and also um you know being a part of stylist, which i know we have been mentioned but that also gave me a big you know uh Gratitude. I'm grateful for it, but also huge motivation to keep going because I that was unlike a presentation or a symposium, which is really important also. But getting published in a journal, you know, in an established journal here at the university, um, honestly, it meant a lot to me, you know, to be able to get recognized at that level. So. um, So, yeah, th- those. All these experiences, I'll never forget them and I'll continue to use them in my future endeavors. Because like you said, with the transfer theory, um, you know, just tweak the skills a little bit to adjust it to the medium that I'm doing it in. But, you know, at the end of the day, these are all fundamental skills that could be applicable to anything. And I, I mean, I've seen it, you know, it's not even just me talking like I've used it in other disciplines. So,
2: yeah, that is that is something I did forget to, to ask him about was the the stylist experience um and just you know a, a, as you as you know because we've talked about it before that that sort of um a little more you know sort of uh, uh competitive or selective process that stylist goes through with the you know the readers and the editors and and the things like that and and just the fact that you know there isn't as much sort of space to to celebrate and, and feature like all the projects all the great projects that students do um knight's Ride is a, is a little bit uh bigger and and capable of of recognizing a lot more kinds of work um i know we talked about you know submitting the paper to stylus and things like that so um you know congratulations on it on Thank it you. getting published and and that was really great and i know that 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 really, you know, did mean a lot to you to to want to also include that, you know, next step or that other step in in recognition for your work.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, you know more than anyone that was the, the main goal since, you know, fall 2019. You know that 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 really I wasn't doing it for a grade. I wasn't doing it for, you know, points. No, I was I envisioned myself making it into the journal one way or another. And um, you know, so it was like I said, just extremely grateful, and you know that I was able to get that accomplished. So
0: well for someone who values public published medium mm-hmm. as a researcher to see yourself in a published yeah. medium, <laughs> it's pretty exciting.
1: It is pretty exciting. It's like you know, I kind of made it because <laughs> yeah. I've been you know looking at all these sources and these established you know journals and whatnot. And you know, this is a really established journal here at the university. So um beyond grateful for the opportunity and for because like you said it's very selective Uh, i mean i knew my paper was like good enough but i was still like i wasn't 100 percent sure that i was gonna get selected because throughout our talks you were telling me how selective and competitive this is and this isn't like you know just the space there's not enough space to for all these other projects to be you know, recognized. So but that just makes getting accepted all the much sweeter. So
0: indeed. Well, thank you again so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It was wonderful chatting with you about your experiences both in eleven oh two and outside of eleven oh two. And all the best on your future endeavors. And we hope to see many more publications with your name on them in the academic arena in history and sports and anything else that you know fan whatever suits your fancy
1: thank you i really appreciate it thank you for having me on the podcast it was great yeah
2: thanks for being here and thanks for listening everybody